0: when can we start when can we when can we when can we start
1: it's the first weekend review on tf3 joining us this weekend dave o'brien from dave
2: talks (laughs) cheers Lawrence. thanks for the intro mate how are you
1: good thank you good to have you on the channel dave you've been at a barbecue this afternoon
2: yeah, it was a friend's birthday from university, it's always good to go and see people that you've not seen in a while And it was a lovely sunny day, so yeah, I had a great time
1: Remind people how successful you are uh, Oh, I've got a blue tick on Twitter, has anyone else in this room got that? Oh no, but you did get it first, fair
2: enough um, I've not got a blue tick yet, Lawrence, one day though, one day I hope
1: It is unusual um, Yes, uh, talking of people with blue ticks
3: uh, Chris Hennage, welcome back Good evening. I have indeed been verified, as yes. being who I said I am. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: which I also think was part of the rehabilitation programme that they said they put you on, so this all this all works. Um,
3: Solved a chronic identity crisis, let me tell you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, before that, you were all over Periscope just claiming things. Um, anyway, let's get down to it. Unfortunately tonight, Adam Botwood is away. And you know what? Adam Botwood's going to be away for a little while anyway, because um, he's going away on a trip. So this is going to be TF three for a little while. If you don't, I mean, he'll be back on Wednesday, but then he will probably go away after that. Um, and we're going to try and fit things around him, but let's see. Uh, anyway, more on that on Wednesday. Maybe you can meet him on the way. Maybe, you know, you might be in Venezuela. Uh, at the same time, trafficking the same shipment of cocaine that he will also be trafficking. So that will be really fascinating. Anyway, uh, let's get into tonight, tonight's episode. Uh, and where is better to start than last season's champions, unusual champions, Dave, uh, being beaten 2 1 by uh, la- last season's unusual champions, uh, th- these guys, Hull?
2: Yeah, it was, a, it was a real interesting game. It was a game that. In a way, it always looked like Leicester were gonna lose. They they were so disjoint. What we what we got from Leicester City last season was a, a solid four four two, a really solid four four two, where the back four was completely covered. It was the, the two wide players would cover the full backs, the two central midfielders would offer great protection to their centre backs, which meant it a lot easier to defend for those players. Danny Simpson looked like a world beater, Christian Fuchs looked absolutely sensational, and then Hooth next to Wes Morgan looked like a real tough centre back pairing, but the issue at Leicester had is they were very disjoint. It looked more like a 4-2-3-1 with um, Danny Drinkwater sitting next to King and then a three behind Jamie Vardy in Mares, Gray and Musa. The issue there is they pressed well up higher at the pitch, but they didn't transition back to the Leicester natural position of, of defending deep in a 4-4-2. And that was a massive issue and Hull City caught them out and ultimately went on to win the game. You know, there were question marks with Robert Huth not playing. But overall, the structure of Leicester City looked very, very poor. It kind of like what it felt like for me, like um, Ranieri tried a little bit too much. Too many attackers. There were four attackers consistently playing on, that, uh, on the break. And you look at the second goal that Hull scored. It was six Leicester defenders playing against the, who, however ever many Hull players going forward. And then there were four attackers on the halfway line. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Hull overloaded and scored a goal. And it's one of those things where Leicester need to evolve. But Leicester aren't going to evolve if they continue on this way. And it's a big, there's a lot of tactical questions out there for them.
1: Is, is it too simple, Dave, to say that last season it was um, Kante that was making up for maybe some of those uh, holes?
2: Uh, yeah, yes and no. But also I think the, the choice of wide player. You know, we saw last season how they balanced it beautifully in midfield. Um, Kante in there, obviously. But you had Old Brighton playing on the left-hand side, which kind of balanced Mares coming inside and, and, and sort of playing on the half-space, playing on the counter-attack. They just didn't have that. Moussa wanted to stay up, Gray wanted to stay up, and wanted to stay up. Didn't have any defenders in those attacking positions in midfield, which, again, went against everything Leicester did so well um, the season before. But I think we've got a credit hole. you know, only having, what, 12 first-team players, 12, players a few days ago before the season started... Um, and coming on to beat the champions, you know, Snodgrass coming back from his knee injury scored a very, very good goal. But overall, I still do think they're going to go down. They don't have what it's got. They've got what it takes to, to stay up there. But it was, a, it was a good performance and a good place to start for them, really.
1: Yeah, Chris, I mean, that was that was part of the surprise, wasn't it? Although maybe that is part of the point of David and Goliath is that actually the whole point of the story is that it's actually the the perception of strength over the idea of someone that's weak. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't really give Hull a chance at the beginning of this weekend because I thought that Ranieri would do uh, what they were supposed to do. But the point was with Hull that they, they did negate a lot of what was going on with Leicester. You still think, though, the quality of Leicester should have been able to do more. And ultimately, there were, they, 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 did, they didn't put away the chances that they created.
3: They didn't. And I think Vardy in particular can be frustrated with that. He did look it. I think they were able to create some avenues. I do think a little bit, though, just to to almost piggyback on what Dave said, the erosion of what was central to them last season was the idea of the unity and working together as a unit. And I think that will become a theme for us most of the season, the idea of it not being about attack and defence, it being about the team and what they contribute as a unit. And I just think Leicester had lost that. And, And funnily enough, Hull, which I think is something the players touched on afterwards, were able to produce that in abundance. Interesting. OK, uh,
1: so uh, has that changed either your perceptions of either side uh, early on in the season or are we very st- still very much, Chris, sort of, this is the first real competitive game that's being played this weekend. So for a lot of sides, I think it's it, it's almost easing yourself back in. I mean, we're, we're going to come, we'll finish today on Arsenal-Liverpool where it looked like a bit of a pre-season for both sides.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think, <clears throat> you know, the, the funny thing is the more things change, the more things stay the same. Mm. For, for Leicester in particular, This is something I've seen in a fair few different teams now. When they win a championship, things change about how that team is looked at by opposition. So I talked to to Liam Ridgewell about this a little bit when he won MLS Cup with Portland. And he said that the start of the next season, teams handled them totally differently. So whereas Yeah, so so sort of maybe three quarters of last season. Teams went after Leicester and thought we can, you know, we won't fall into the same trap as other teams. We can beat them; they're not that good. Actually, now teams are giving them credit for what they did. And as you said, there we're kind of sitting back a little bit, staying compact. That's what Hull did basically. Leicester didn't move the ball quick enough, and too often, I think that allowed Hull to kind of just sit deep and get men behind the ball and make it not impossible for them to to find space. Mm, yeah
1: that is really fascinating isn't it I mean especially when you I think that's what's confused a lot of pundits uh, in this season so far is that they don't really know where to place Leicester in the table because last season obviously they finished first Um, and a lot of people kind of want them to remain relevant but the problem is that actually you know an anomaly of a season um, isn't isn't really going to fit into a bigger narrative although it does I just think that the problem is that most people aren't writing the right stories Um, man of the match overall in this one uh, for either side, Chris. You say, I mean, I could you could say Snodgrass. Essentially, he seems to be representing something at
3: that side right now. You were were reading my mind there. I would have said Snodgrass. I think his goal was good. I like just his overall hustle. Um, I think he he gives them a little bit of dynamism in in attack, but a bit more consistency than someone like Abel Hernandez does.
1: Yeah, uh, and then obviously Hernandez was the other significant name out there that hasn't been poached from Leicester yet um, a lot of people and I think a lot of people do stand with uh, the Leicester uh, the, sorry from Hull a lot of people do stand with the Hull fans at this point in saying that they do think their club has been mismanaged and I think a lot more people should be talking about it um, however it does look like there is going to be a takeover uh, from a Chinese body so let's see what that is uh, very very soon uh, Leicester fans dealing with you know being as irrelevant as some of the other sides in the Premier League very well I'm joking um Am I? Let's go into Burnley-Swansea, Chris. Now, most people tipping Burnley to go down this season. But, you know, uh, we also spoke in the preview podcast about the, the difference for Swansea this season and some of their signings, how they've struggled um, to, to maybe sign some of the uh, marquee players that some other people have. And obviously Andre Ayew has gone, who was a fairly um, significant player for them last season. And bafetimbi uh has also been loaned out. So quite an identity change uh, in terms of faces on the pitch, but it seems as if Swansea continue what they've already been working on for seasons.
3: I, th- I think the telling thing here was, of the two sides, Swansea did have a bit of Premier League quality in their in, in their team, and, and Burnley didn't. That was because it's not as if Burnley didn't have chances; they had opportunities, and it was some really good goalkeeping from Fabianski that kept a clean sheet for Swansea. I just I, with Burnley. I find myself so confused by the fact that last time they came up, I understood why they didn't go crazy in the transfer market. They wanted to improve the infrastructure. They wanted to improve the club sort of as a whole. And that money was used to do that. This time around, I can't fathom why Goodmanson is the only real signing of note for the first team. Why they're only just now agreeing a deal with Stephen DeFore of, of uh, Anderlecht. It does. It just doesn't make sense, and and I imagine it's even more frustrating if you're a Burnley fan because, again, no team wants to be a yo-yo club, and that's quickly I think what Burnley are developing into. Mm, yeah, very good point.
1: Although uh, some sides have actually transitioned out of being a yo-yo club quite nicely, haven't they? I mean, you could say uh, maybe
3: West, Br- West Brom. They have. I think the thing with Burnley is it's. It, you could argue it's not a necess- it, it is not a necessity, um, because of the TV money, because of that aspect of things now it's a lot different to when West Brom were doing it and trying to to find ways to fund better players than what they had I think Burnley have got the avenue to do that now they're just choosing not to do it and the fact that in the week building up to this game Sean Dyche is talking about how he kind of compared himself to Antonio Conte and all these things <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I just think it looks a bit laughable that, and it's, it's unfortunate for Burnley because I think they've, they've got a lot of potential but once they sold Danny Ings it felt As if they didn't actually progress, and now they feel in this
1: weird, um, awkward stage. That is is an unusual one, isn't it, Chris? Because obviously, from the outside, uh, Burnley, you know, could very much submit to the way that uh, they're being portrayed. But I mean, at the same time, they had just gone down at that point. If you have a striker that wants to go, then it does sort of make sense to let them go. And I mean, credit to them, they they're back where they wanted to be. Um, So you know,
3: is it really all that awful in that sense? I see the point that you're making and I don't, I don't think it's an inherently bad one. Mm. I think, I just think you've got to have more ambition than that. That's no, what it I, is. I
1: agree. Yeah. I agree. And, and sometimes maybe um, progress isn't always in a straight linear fashion. And I definitely think within the premier league and all the money that's in it, uh, some sides are finding that out of the season and maybe Leicester found that out last season as well. Um, although the linear fashion of progress does seem to also be a bit unusual with the likes of palace and west brom west brom of course getting a 1-0 win against palace uh where do you want to go first with this one uh because well palace are fascinating and west brom are pretty fascinating after the game pulis chris uh, came out and said we need a uh, we need someone else we need some investment
3: yeah that's a funny one really i'm i'm not sure where he's targeting with that, I think actually they looked all right. I don't, don't think there was any huge problem with West Brom in that sense.
1: Um, it's, it's unusual, isn't it? Because actually, whilst he's whilst he's complaining, maybe trying to play the injured party in a sense, uh, Rondon obviously got his goal. purely spoke mm-hmm. about stagnation, but actually Saido Barahino looked for, you know, for the first time uh, in a little while like he was actually engaging with the game, um, which was pretty fascinating as well.
3: Yeah, I think... <clears throat> the thing with uh, West Brom is, I guess they could lead on from from Burnley in that sense. So they haven't made a huge amount of investment, but I think the players that they had still had a few levels to climb to reach their potential. Rondon being the, the best example. Yeah. The talk is they're going to get Jeffrey Schlup. Ah, from of Leicester. Course, yeah. That's big. That that's
1: that'll end the stagnation.
3: Well, it's I think it's eleven and a half million. They're going to have to pay um, for Jeffrey Schlup. Yeah. <laughs> I think actually he fits the Pulis dynamic quite well. He's a fast, direct, wide man, which is what he really likes. Um, so it's, it's that idea of do you overpay for someone that you know will deliver exactly what you need or do you spend more time scouring the market trying to find that person Just perhaps abroad? I hate, I hate to sort of uh, foreshadow because actually I quite like what Pulis has done with the West Brom,
1: but uh, was that not similar to what ultimately led to the downfall of uh, Pulis at Stoke?
3: To a degree, I think I think his issue there was he wasn't that willing to spend abroad. Um, <laughs> what made you say that? Uh, he bought a lot of players that, I don't know, actually. Charlie it Adam, the um yeah, Cameron Jerome... Um, I mean, yeah, the, the, the first two weren't terrible. I think the first two delivered. There was one that always sticks in my mind, uh, a chap called Andrew Davies, who is now at Ross County, was a Middlesbrough graduate.
2: Um, um Southampton as well, I think.
3: Yeah, he played at Southampton. They paid, I want to say, £3 million for him. Isn't that too bad? And it just looked like an utterly baffling move. I think he only played twice for them or something like that, and he had a series of loan spells away before he kind of left. And it was deals like that, I think, that just did him in the end because it got to the point where he'd spent like £98 million on players and they just hadn't really progressed. So it will be interesting to see if he's given that opportunity at West Brom because actually the talk was they wanted to get rid of him for that reason and didn't want to give him the money. Dave, in complete contrast to that, is the Barcelona football of uh,
1: Crystal Palace this season. Um, Truly stunning.
2: Yet to flatter, I'd say, Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think it's this, this result kind of pushes on what we were saying. You know, I've got I've got Palace at 17th being relegated this season, and I think this is kind of going that same way. I feel Palace, Palace are, lack a lot. Palace get relegated
1: in 17th?
2: In 18th, sorry. There you go, OK. Um, I just don't think they've got the quality. I don't think signing someone like Christian Benteke is going to raise that level don't think they're good enough they're losing Ben Lassie, who's been a stole at that club for a number of years they're going to be left with Wilfred Zaha who has zero M product and, and a midfield that's pretty dodgy a defence that now has James Tompkins for 10 million I just don't think they're going to be get there. they haven't gone anywhere they haven't tris- transitioned anywhere I think it's going to be that classic due that the time will come that it'll be time for him to be sacked come maybe January maybe even earlier December
1: I mean, it's an unusual one, isn't it? Because obviously this Palace side at some point will go on a run where they do, you know, there's, there's 10 games where they have uh, six wins, uh, two draws and two losses in there, two heavy losses, Chris. Uh, I think that's at least scheduled for just before December. Um, and then just after that, people say, is he good enough? People say, do you remember Newcastle? Then people say, uh, shit, Sam Allardyce isn't around anymore. Um, and
3: then, then, what, then what do Palace do? I think, honestly, I think the Palace situation is mirroring previous clubs of his quite frighteningly. Yes. So he had a, a terrible run like the one that he did at the end of last season with Palace at Newcastle, where mm-hmm. post Christmas everyone just put the brakes on. And it was so much of that was attributed to Mike Ashley and, and everything around there. So the fact that it then happened at Palace didn't make sense because. You know, Steve Parrish is incredibly supportive, quite ambitious for the club and all that kind of stuff. I just think there's a point where people stop listening to his ideas. And I think that happens ha- happens usually after a full season. Um, I think he's very limited in what he can do. Do I think he's well drilled in that. But there's not a great deal of substance after that. It's, it's a lot of half-baked ideas that are, are more about not losing the game than trying to win it. Do you think that's
1: part of the problem with uh, Palace? And and I mean, but, but Palace Palace fans, I think were quite you know they they welcomed him with open arms, and I think you know they were always very willing to hear what ideas he had. And the the problem is with uh, the problem is with him that essentially he comes into the club and he does have very big, quite bombastic ideas about how to play his side. And sometimes that works because Zaha and Balassi on either wing is quite nice, Dave. But tactically, there's a point where when the players stop believing in that, then they. The team almost begin to not play his style anymore, and it's it's really unusual to watch.
2: I think it's it's, it's that kind of situation where he's tried a number of things, and it's always like he's a, he's a bit of a tinkerman in a way where he's tried loads of different different iterations of these attackers. Uh, and quite frankly, I think it's come to the end of the road with them. You know, the the use of um, you know Balassi in certain positions um, against West Brom, he played Lee Chung Young at uh, number ten, which is not fascinating. It's confusing. chung <laughs> Young was really good it's about yeah. three years ago, playing right wing. Yet yeah, he played most of the game. Played, uh, you know, sixty-six minutes at attacking midfield. You know, blending that with Andros Townsend, who's very inconsistent, and Zaha, who's very inconsistent, playing Punchin in a deeper role. Like this, seems like such a mess. You know, Kabayi was on the bench, came on uh, uh, on the seventy-seventh minute for Jason Punchin. What's that? You know, there's some big questions there. They're playing three wingers, attacking midfield, one attacking midfield, at defensive midfield, and then Yedinyak. Was he going to completely control the whole thing? No, he's not. I mean, that is that, just, un- it's,
1: it's that is unusual, immense. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that is that is Chris. That is unusual, isn't it? Because I almost have this vision of him sort of going around the training ground and sort of having a word in different players' ears and sort of being like, "This is your week, mate. This is your week." This is the week when you and I think sometimes it works because we see you know wingers explode and all those sort of things, but it never seems as if we see an incredible
3: cohesive performance. No, I don't think he's. I don't think he's someone that ekes out team performances. I think he's actually very reliant on talisman. If you look at last season, I'd say Balassi was that talisman for a good portion of last season, and then eventually they hit call patches, as every player does. And that's sort of my issue with, with him, is, is that when I've read interviews usually of players who've left him, granted they may have an axe to grind, they usually talk about the fact that they just don't do a lot of tactical work. There's not Outside of defensive positioning, defensive work in general, there's not a lot being put in there. And if you look at his teams in general, I don't think that are that able to break teams down. I think he's someone that can orchestrate a counter-attack inside quite well, and produce a team that can transition quickly. Give them the ball. Again, I'm not that sold on them being able to pass through opponents, and I think that shows in games like yesterday. Yeah, well, one, one place
1: where the uh, destination is away from Selhurst Park, unfortunately, for West uh, for uh, Crystal Palace, because they're a great side, and with great fans, is uh, where Balassi is heading. Dave, uh, Everton 1, Spurs 1 significant moments within this game?
2: Well, first, I think it, tactically it was fascinating, especially in the first half. You know, Everton were expecting Ronald Koeman to play a 4-2-3-1 play and, and play like-for-like like against Tottenham. You know, Tottenham last season were excellent. They did very, very well. But whenever a team played a 4-2-3-1 against them, they found it a little bit more difficult. You know, they we went man-for-man man against Spurs. You worked them out. But whatever what Koeman did especially... And um, they played a 3-4-3 three, three against them. Yeah. So they had three centre-backs in, Maury, Jagielka and, and Holgate, who was very good in the game. A midfield four of Leighton Baines on the left, Gareth Barry midfield with Jesse Guyon and then James McArthur on the right. And then a front three, very interchangeable positions Great. at Morales, nice. Delafeo through the middle and Ross Barkley. But what that meant was that it pinned Spurs' biggest weapon on the, the attack back, which is their full-backs. You know, playing with the front three in this shape, like Everton did, it meant that there was no space for their full-backs to push on. So, Carl Walker and Danny Rose were really pinned back in that first half and really struggled. Everton dominated it for most of the game. It, I think it was up until the, the first Spurs substitution. It was around 56, 57 minutes where they brought on Jansen and the shape changed a bit. They went they went actually to a, four, a 4-4-2, which meant that, um, you know, the three Everton centre-backs were now taken up by the two Spurs forwards and there was space for the Spurs... Wide players, so the wing-backs had to trick back and so forth, pushed Karl Walker and Danny Rose forward to get crosses into the penalty area that kind of changed the game. And then Eric Lamella comes up with a goal running from an inside position out that caused the overload. But it was just so interesting tactically that Koeman dominated from the first half by playing a 3-4-3 against Spurs' system, and they didn't really have any answers to it. They were very flat. They couldn't get anything going. I think the midfield of Wanyama and Eric Dyer is completely broken. Wanyama's a destroyer. And for me, Eric Dier is also a similar player in that area. Not quite a destroyer, but more of a reader of the game, an interceptor. But play the same role in midfield. And without having someone like Moussa Dembele, who can explode, who can drive through, that can play forward passes, they really struggle to get the ball into Eriksen's feet, into Dele Alli's feet. So there's, I think there's going to be some questions. Because if other teams set up like Everton did against Spurs, Spurs are going to have a number of issues this year that they're going to have to come over. One way to come over that, obviously, is playing with those two forwards.
1: And that's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, uh, yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of uh, there's going to be a lot of movement at one club, and then not very much movement at another. Chris, let's talk about some uh, movement going on at Everton. Uh, apparently, Kone is on his way there uh, from Sunderland, or apparently not,
3: according to Mister Moyes. Yeah, he said that <clears throat> Kone had no idea about the statement that was released and attributed to him. I I don't think I should say. It was released by a chap called Keith Downey. who was Sky's Northeast reporter. I don't think Keith is lying or being dishonest. And I say that because I actually uh, know the guy. Yeah. I think it's... Come is he honest? His agent. Yeah. Yeah? He is. Uh, he, he won't, he won't fight the lift tenor, and then
1: sort of, you know, say so it wasn't him. <laughs> no, no. Um, okay, I th- just
3: checking. I think, I, th- I think this has come from his agent, who is William Mackay's son. I think his name is Mark Mackay. Um. And I can see why he's pushing the issue. I guess Moyes is just... I don't know. I guess he's playing games as well. It, it seems a weird thing to put out in the public, to be honest. It, it it seems like he's trying to draw a division between agent and player or maybe even try and keep uh, the feeling around Koenig positive among supporters because none were too happy when he released that statement, albeit via that guy's Twitter account that I mentioned. That's a very good point because, uh, like
1: you said, off uh, air, Chris... Uh, Kone was apparently videoed with fans saying that he hadn't been offered a new contract which would sort of fit with the same statement
3: yeah he's, he's confirmed that element of the story that the crux of the issue is at the end of last season uh, he was promised a, contra- a new contract or uh, a pay rise by Sam Allardyce for his performances mm-hmm. that was a verbal agreement and it hasn't been fulfilled by the club now the clubs or not the club's official argument but the argument, at least, of supporters has been it was a verbal agreement, first and foremost. It was made by the previous manager, etc., etc. I kind of see both sides in the sense of if you give him a rise, you've got to give Kirchhoff a rise. You've arguably got to give Defoe a rise as well. Um, and yet, if I was promised to pay a rise by my boss and then it was not delivered just because he left... I wouldn't be too happy. Yeah, because you imagine that that boss should have probably gone to the people above him and said, this is my long-term
1: plan. But I mean, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of in Liar Liar when he promises his secretary that he'll give her a raise and then he doesn't. And then she goes, raise this. And then gives them the middle finger. Um. Anyway, Chris, thanks for your seriousness there. That actually helps some fans out there who are trying to work out who's going where. Uh, let's move on to Sunderland though. Uh, that, that was the last game there actually. Uh, Man City played Sunderland. Dave it was 2-1 to Man City in the end obviously in exactly the way that Pep planned it with her own goal (laughs) um tactically this one played out quite interestingly but there is something very quick uh, to put in there which is obviously the recent transfer um McNair was the first player to score an own goal on his Premier League debut for a team since uh Danny Gabadon for QPR exactly (laughs) five years ago uh Paul McNair But uh, Dave, tactically, this game played out fascinating in so many fascinating ways for the Premier League, at least, even if there are other people on the continent who aren't so fascinated by it.
2: Yeah, I think it's the introduction to the Premier League of um, inverted fullbacks, in a way, you know, a concept that's been used uh, on the continent uh, for a number of years. You know, Pep, Pep Pep Guardiola's Bayern Munich have done this for about three seasons where, Uh, David Alaba and Philip Lahm have have pretty much come into the central midfield positions and created a midfield three with the defensive midfielder that's playing there. We saw that yesterday with uh, Pep Guardiola that in a lot of the game, City's formation looked like a 2-3, 4-1. So two centre-backs with uh, three players in front, which were the two full-backs. And the defensive midfield, Fernandinho, who was brilliant in the game. I think Fernandinho is a player that's really going to excel under Pep Guardiola. But just going back to the game, so the, the three players in there, were. ahead of them were the two central midfielders for Manchester City, Sterling and De Bruyne, um, flanked either side by Nalito and Sterling, whose um, tactical instructions were to spread the game as wide as possible. This was crucial for Raheem Sterling's performance. Sterling had a cracking game. Won the penalty, but all round was very lively. Uh, completed seven take-ons, more than any other player in the Premier League this weekend. But it gave him a new lease of life. Where someone's told him to stay wide and just take people on. Simple job, but he did it very well. But also the system created it that Sterling was given these one-on-ones. That's why you play inverted fullbacks to create one-on-one v ones on the outside. Because if you play these fullbacks that come inside, hold the central space. The opposition central midfielders have an, issue, have an issue because they can either push up and um, put a bit of pressure on these two fullbacks that have come inside, or deal with the central midfielders that will be drifting behind them. So there's a lot of tactical things which mean the team has to be a lot narrower, which means that you necessarily don't need a fullback and a winger on each flank to, to stretch the play. You could probably do it with two wide players, but also with that it means that there's a lot of space inside. If you know Kevin De Bruyne and Sterling want to, sorry, Silva want to. Um, pull underlaps, you know, going inside those wide players, which happened a number of times on Silver's time. De Bruyne was very quiet because he's been playing on his wrong position, which is stupid on the or whatever. I'll forget that. But these underlaps on Silver's side, especially with Silver playing one twos with Nelito and then coming inside the man and getting into the penalty area, is very very clever. But the issue, I think, the, another issue as well, is I feel that these City players aren't good enough yet. Yeah, that is, to... that is part of, they,
1: they still have that old City swagger, which I find really weird to watch because it looks like them trying to play intelligent tactics, but in like a, a Man City shirt.
2: Well, I think the big thing is the players aren't ready for it. You know, asking um, Gael Clichy to dictate the play and um, play a number of passes forward into attacking areas and being in areas where he's under pressure is a bit too much of the play. I'm not saying he's a bad player, Gael Clichy, but he's not good enough to play that role. I was quite impressed with Kolarov. So Kolarov actually started at centre-back next to John Stones, was quite good at bringing the ball out and playing those forward passes. So maybe he has a future of playing this inverted fullback role. But I imagine as soon as Otamende's back, he's going to be back next to John Stones' centre-back. Because there were a number of times that I feel that with City, if you tell your, tell your striker to play on the outside shoulder with the centre-back, you're going to get a lot of joy this season if you get maybe an attacking midfielder combining with you, drifting the, the same way. In which, which would be the fascinating opponent. to
1: see maybe uh, Jurgen Klopp Liverpool play City, those sort of sides.
2: Yeah, I think that Manchester United will beat them in the fourth yes. game of the season because I feel they've got that. You know, we saw Zlatan drift. Um, if it, if if Marcus Rashford starts that game, I feel that United have got that in the bag because that'll cause that back four a lot of problem. And the other thing with City as well, when Sunderland actually put a bit of pressure on, when they were getting forward, when Van Arnveld wasn't defending, he was didn't pretty awful like it, good defending. But when he was attacking. Sunderland looked like City... They, they basically... It felt like City was so uncomfortable defending. Like, putting pressure on them when they were sort of in their own final third defending... and their own defensive third defending. They looked so uncomfortable. Who pushes out? Who goes? And you saw that with the goal. John Stones just disappeared. He pushed out too far. He got too giddy. And then, obviously, um, Jermaine Defoe gets slipped through and finishes off a wonderful move. That was the second time that that sort of similar manoeuvre happened. Jermaine Defoe had another pretty decent uh, chance in the first half. So, I feel like if you pressurise City... They'll crumble this season. They really will. Mm.
1: Interesting. Although maybe they'll find ways not to crumble. Uh,
2: mm, I think that's the, the, the coaching, isn't it? I think that's the thing perhaps going to have to uh, uh, deal with and establish around that, right?
1: And that, uh, yeah, and I think that's what's going to be really fascinating, isn't it, Chris? Is that actually, you know, we saw some of the criticisms of um, Stones and Kolarov And also some of the the praising, like Dave's already done, but some of the criticisms were they didn't quite find the position that they wanted. There was a lot of space between Stones and Kolarov. And, you know, those are all things that can be addressed. Um, But it's also going to be interesting to see what they do addressing that goalkeeper in the back line. Because obviously uh, Pep has said that, you know, Hart should rise to the challenge of being dropped uh, because he's not been good enough with his feet. I mean, apparently they're going for... Who are they going for? They're going for Patricio.
2: Possibly. Uh, Apparently it's to I've heard one of my mates in Manchester, who's got a pretty decent link with the club, was saying that they have signed to already. And that's going to go through in about
1: two weeks. Uh, So they've not signed him already. As in, he's injured at the moment, so he wouldn't be able to pass a medal. He wouldn't be able able to pass a medal. But they've got got an agreement in place, is what you're saying? Apparently, yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, Apparently they're also looking at Patricio, although maybe that is just... Uh, to buy the club some time. I don't know, maybe that, that there's something in there. Um, but Chris, obviously that means that in the next two weeks, uh, we are going to see or going to need to see a goalkeeper who can play with his feet. And I don't think Joe Hart's
3: going to be particularly happy to play number two to Tess Shagan. No, he's not. He's got international ambitions he needs to think about as well as anything. Well, it's also that he's a pretty
1: decent goalkeeper. It's just that he doesn't fit a, a feet-playing system.
3: He's he's a good he is a good goalkeeper. I I don't know if the Euros did much for his reputation or because he seems to constantly be beaten when shots from distance are put to his left. Yes. Um, and I think just in general, Guardiola is really ruthless in terms of cutting players that he doesn't think fit the system. He did that at Barcelona when he first earned promotion to the first team. He got rid of players like Deco and people like that who, in his eyes, just didn't do what he needed them to do from a a playing standpoint so i'm not surprised
1: standpoint i mean but but that's not really a criticism
3: of heart apparently is the ultimate profession off the pitch no of course he is i I think it's no surprise to see him go in that sense i also think that maybe they can improve that's the thing i I think it's only cruel if you don't think there's going to be a significant improvement i would argue to stegan is that improvement um, not just from his ability to pass the ball, but just in general. So it, it makes a, a lot of sense. And, and equally, if, if Man City want to achieve their goals of winning the Champions League and these kind of things, you do have to become chronically ruthless. Um, you really don't have time for passengers. Jesus, this man, he's chronically ruthless.
1: Um I don't know why I said that. Uh, let's, let's just quickly look at two of uh, Pep Guardiola's previous sides. Obviously, Dave, where he's laid down the foundations where those clubs have then gone on and built from, uh, but in very different ways, actually. Uh, Barcelona 2, Sevilla nil tonight. Uh, Chris led us, uh, our attention to the lovely chest down from Marta Turam, running onto that from Luis Suarez for Barcelona's first goal. Um, and apparently Sevilla had zero shots on target, uh, so nobody really testing them. And then, Dave, what's fascinating? And you've said this time after time, off air, obviously. Dortmund nil, Bayern two.
2: Yeah, I think it's 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 a transition for both those sides. Barcelona, obviously beating Severe, Sevilla, but Severe Sevilla massively in transition, going from playing under under Neymar to playing under San Paulo is is a pretty big thing. You know, the thing that interesting, the possession stat that massively swang away from usually you'd expect Barça sixty percent versus Sevilla, what's that dropping to fifty one percent, which is interesting in itself that Sevilla want to hold the ball a lot better uh, under Sampaoli, But I think that'll come. I think the big question for Barça, who's gonna be that fourth forward, Monier put in a pretty decent um, you know, showcase tonight for his talents. They've been they've been linked with Paco from Valencia. It would be interesting to see if he makes the makes the transition over to Barcelona. But then again, going back to um, Borussia Dortmund there were some good performances in central midfield Roda, um playing pretty well uh, you know Dembele showing off Ramos putting a bit in there but there's just not being that good enough you know dominating the ball but not having that final thrust and Bayern Munich obviously coming through and, and winning the game you know what else can you do they've got so much depth of quality in there what you're you taking off Frank Ribery for Kings of Komen there's there's just so much variation in that attack and midfield. Matt Hummels not having the best of games as well, you'd say. He does have that, though, every like 10 games or 12 games. Matt Hummels just seems to have a bit of a stinker. Um, but then the rest of them will pretty awesome. So I think it's just a bit of adjustment for him. But yeah, no, well done to Ancelotti for winning his first German title.
1: Yes, um, although he uh, Hummels does look good in a Bayern shirt. It's unusual, isn't it? Because you're so used to seeing him in that yellow.
2: Mm, it's, it's different. His boots look very good tonight. Very, very nice boots. What kind of
1: boots were these, Dave? Uh, Dave?
2: Adidas, lovely Adidas. I think they were red ones, but really oh, orangey.
1: Oh, not red ones. Oh, red ones. Good do you think? Tickets. Do you think they were Ace?
2: They, they were pretty Ace, mate.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, tell you what, Dave. Uh, they're probably not the first pair of boots he's worn. Although, first never follows. Um, let's move <laughs> on uh, to uh, let's move on to actually how your fantasy guys did this weekend, Dave. You're big into your fantasy football. Um, yeah, and you know what? The other day, I joined and actually cared about for the first time the front three fantasy league. I didn't realise there were so many people in it. Yeah, come on, Lawrence. Dave, there's, loads. Dave, there's like there's like six or seven pages of names. Yeah, good. I didn't realise it was right? that big. The lads really are in. Um, the lads are absolutely in. Did you have a good First Fantasy weekend?
2: I had a very poor First <sighs> yeah, Fantasy weekend,
1: too. Lawrence. I think I I, I, was, I was just above average of the rest of the country.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I had Ibram, I had Aguero, which did very well. But I was disappointed with my defence, my goalkeeper. I had Joe Hart in there. Yeah. I didn't see so I, I did actually so on Saturday morning come 11 o'clock so that's in the UK when the deadline's at 11 30 in the UK I was trying to put in check for heart. obviously that would have been even worse yeah um, you know lost boys points were checked but I was trying to you know bash that confirm button but the servers were down see you later Dave you should have done a transfer early um, but sure you know, thought of this
1: on Friday sure night when this. you were in the office trying to waste time
2: Exactly. But the thing, the thing with um, midfield, I've got Delafeo De who missed a 1v1, clean through on goal, should have definitely scored. Tardic, who had a very good game, created five chances, um, the most of any player in the Premier League this weekend, but again, get an assist. Eriksen, didn't have the best of games. Ramsey, eh. So midfield let me down a bit. But up front, I've still got Andy Carroll to play, and I'm hoping that he scores a double hat-trick.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. Do you, um, so, so you're saying six goals uh, from Andy Carroll in yes. one game? Uh, correct let's actually transition into a quick preview of that game then chelsea obviously play west ham uh chris before we talk about your uh, before we talk about your fantasy team uh what do you think what are your thoughts on that game obviously conte's debut in the premier league along with uh billich who wants to impress
3: i actually think west ham could win this and i think Good there gosh. is n- there will never be a better time to play chelsea than right now and i say that because as much you didn't as seen them last season well the, th- the thing is as much as we're theorizing about how they will line up and how they will look i imagine chelsea are almost doing that themselves because this is the first kind of competitive kick under conte so the, there'll be kinks to be worked out I, i'm really not bothered how well or how good they've looked in preseason. season there'll be problems discovered tomorrow that will i think come come through OK in, in time. But again, I think West Ham are a lot more suited and a lot more harmonious than than Chelsea will be just because they haven't had the the chronic changes.
1: Yeah, it is fascinating. Although, uh, obviously, there, there is some sort of public signal there that Conte is relatively happy with the squad that he's fallen upon. Uh, although maybe he's been told he's, he's going to get some time, so maybe he's trying to make this team work. We'll see. Or maybe people didn't want to go to Chelsea because they don't believe in the project. A lot of different narratives there to be written. Uh, Chris, uh, I'll come back to you in a second for your fantasy stuff. Dave, your preview for the Chelsea-West Ham game, do you actually legitimately think uh, that they're going to score some goals on Chelsea? Or is is this uh, conjecture?
2: I think it's going to be a really interesting game because Conte has been flapping about with his formations in pre-season, 4-3-3, 4-5-1. Flapping about or experimenting? Yeah, a bit of both, I think. I think he he still doesn't know what his best side is. He still doesn't know how to play this Chelsea side, because I think there's just players there that aren't Conte players. Fabregas is a big one, mm-hmm. um, just not Conte at all. But I feel like Fabregas uh, has been banging in pre-season. I feel like he'll... Fabregas, sorry, Azard, Eden Azard has been great in pre-season. I feel he'll continue that form. So he's a man to watch. It's going to be this West Ham defence. Um, Aaron Cresswell was a, a massive, massive blow. He was brilliant from left-back last season. So who are they going to bring in for that? It's going to be quite interesting. Gooley, who... Um, fantasy football-wise, 5.5 could be a, a really good option in there. But, again, poor season at Valencia, good preseason. Let's see how he does. Uh, Payet's injured. Uh, Payet's not injured, sorry. He's come back from the aura late, so he won't be playing, apparently. But I do think Andy Carroll could really cause this Chelsea backline some some problems, you know, with his with his movement, with his aggression. If, if he fancies it, and I think this might be a day, a day where he does. Nico Antonio as well, who had a brilliant end to the last campaign, is always going to be a danger down that right-hand side. So, yeah. it's going to be I'm going to go with a 2-2 draw
0: interesting Desmond
1: uh Chris I won't come back to you for a prediction and I don't like making them uh, your fantasy football is that do you do fantasy football
3: not really good mm. good boy I, I, I don't uh, you don't waste I, you, you I don't think.
1: fool yourself at the beginning of the season into thinking that it's worth putting aside that you'll then leave a week later because you don't really do it anyway
3: pretty much yeah i don't have the the commitment to go back and change it every week and sit and agonize it's just not something that interests me you don't have to agonize over it i would though i know i would I haven't played it in the past i know i would
1: yeah yeah fair enough um well, then chris i'm gonna stick with you for a minute because i we were talking off air as a three about how much we missed adam and how good he was sort of bringing things together and we were sort of saying how there's a bit of frustration over maybe some other places where it it seems now there's a lot less about actually painting a true story and a lot more about painting the story the way that you would like to see it and what we were kind of saying was it's a really good way to equip yourself at the beginning of the season to work out where you're going to get your stories Uh, and I was saying to both of you where would you go this season to get a story that you believe is a sort of a, um, a true representation of what is going on at a club um, Chris you said you go to Twitter um, but th- then that comes down to yourself to sort of curate things do you think you've curated a good follower list on Twitter people that you follow
3: I think so I, I think I mean I went on a, a small mass unfollowing just before the season started yeah. um, thanks for that t- um, I, do, I don't t- know why I didn't wonder
1: <laughs> when my number dropped
3: uh, you rarely tweet if anything um, funny, yeah. I, th- I think I let the record reflect i do still follow that it's good yeah um i so that is is definitely part of it i I think for me personally as well i do like to go to reddit i find that quite a decent place if not always for news i think it is very good for that it's usually even better for debate um interesting in in what way like do do you actually it's
1: not sort of a it's not sort of like a you're a massive dick uh and and i'm always right people turn their heads when i debate sort of area
3: yeah i think um i think what's good about it is the 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 moderators or the, the people that control it are quite vigilant about kind of removing that and the good thing is as well because it's got obviously the upvote downvote system mm. um you can you say you've got a, a thread that has i don't know a hundred a thousand comments you can set it to top and usually the the top of what comment is not something stupid it's something that actually has a little bit of detail and and kind of intelligence to it so it's good in that sense and like i say i, I can honestly say i've learned a variety of different things just from from scanning there and reading through different discussions
1: uh for instance that Cony Lingus was not a left back for Spurs in the mid-90s. Um, Dave, do you agree?
2: Yeah, I think Reddit's the best place to get creative content because it is that system of voting. It is up and down. You, you know, if some clickbait comes onto it or whatever, you're down. And when you're up, you're up. So it's fine. You know, it's fascinating things. You can go on to football tactics, whatever you want to see. I think that's the, the great thing. Our fantasy football, which is a great one for your fantasy football tips. Then there's loads of different things you can find on Reddit. You know, there's a lot of niches and I think that's the beauty of it.
1: Interesting. Good. Um, both of you on both of you on Reddit quite regularly. Yeah,
2: pretty much twenty four seven, Lawrence. Three six five, three six nine. Mm.
1: Um, but you can't you can't sort of follow one specific person on Reddit, or can you? Can, or can you? I don't know. Uh, really? No, not to my knowledge. So it's not like someone can sort of go along and go, oh, Dave is looking at this.
2: <laughs> I think you can. You can tell, tell what I was doing if you wanted to.
3: You can bookmark the person and then their profile will show everything that they've submitted or written or anything like that.
1: Great. I knew that Kristen would know that. Um, And have you done that often, either of you? No. What's her name?
2: (laughs) What's her name, Chris?
1: I'm joking. Um, Chris isn't like to speak about his personal life on the podcast we've been through this once Dave, drop it um, sorry Chris Middlesbrough Stoke won all Uh Chris this is fascinating because <laughs> this is one of the only teams in your area that's still represented in the Premier League Um and of course they're on Tyneside aren't they? t I'm, I knew that that would get your back up when I said that. That's the only reason I said it. Uh, no, but obviously I was uh,
3: surprised. To be honest, fair play—you got me hook, line, and sinker there because yeah. I was not, he, he's not this stupid. He's, he knows the T side is a place.
1: He does know that T side is a place and it's not just the shortening of a name. Um, yeah. And we know how desperate Middlesbrough are to be on that, in that sort of uh, relationship and they're they always teased about not being part of that. But it, there's something sort of almost, um, it, there is a bit like a bit of the furniture was missing for quite a long time in the Premier League, wasn't it, Chris? And I know that maybe you won't acknowledge that up in the Tyneside area, but uh, it, it was very much like they just sort of got straight back into it. Um, and there's something quite nice about that because there's, there are shades of sort of the Ravinelli-Giannino era about this side.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think uh, I don't think the the way they played or the signings they made were Fantastic. at all that of a newly promoted team. Yep. And I think actually the comparison with Genino Ravinelli is quite an astute one. I know. The because of the likes of Dinkrato and and people like that, they've actually they've seemed to find a very good harmony between getting players that are established names and then also players that. Still have a good bit of life left in their career. So Negrino was arguably the best example. Valdez, free kicker side, is another good one. And I think actually it sets them up for a, quite a good foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And then what about the uh, what about the Stoke side of things?
3: Um. Exactly. It's a, it's a weird one, Steph. I just have a feeling they're going to maybe regress a little bit this season. I've, I have such a conflicting opinion on Mark Hughes as a manager because I, I can't tell. I think, honestly, some of my opinion of him is rude in the fact that I just don't like him very much. He does, he, there's something about it. It's, it's still that whole handshake thing, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. It's It's that thing of there's no kind of glaring issue with the way he manages per se but I just think I don't rate you that. I just, I don't know what it is. I mean, look, if there's a Stoke fan out there with an opinion that agrees or conflicts, I'm happy to hear it. I just find that he's a little bit, a little bit self aggrandizing. He likes to blow smoke up his own butt. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, we've, we've all met someone like that at some point in our lives. Um, not least on TF3. Um, it, it is interesting, although if you believe that you out there relate to Mark Hughes, uh, tweet us with the hashtag IamMarkHughes uh, and let us know that you're in solidarity with the manager who doesn't seem to have very many fans within the Premier League. We'll see very soon. Uh, and obviously, there was, uh, it, Chris, what the interesting thing about that game was that it almost seemed that as Middlesbrough sort of tired and allowed Stoke back into the game, that was what let Stoke back in.
3: Yeah, I think... I think essentially, as can often be the case, the first day, all the excitement and all that kind of thing, Middlesbrough just went a little bit too hard on the, the gas pedal yeah. and it left them just kind of a little bit tired a little bit worn out by the end of things. But there's enough within that 90 minutes, I think, for them to take positives and, and believe that they can actually stay in this league.
1: I do also think that's what is quite positive about a championship game uh, compared to a Premier League game is that actually... Fitness-wise, it is a different kind of fitness in the Premier League, but there's a very good basis sort of set down in the Championship for uh, sort of coming up to the Premier League, if you like, for a lot of these guys. It's not that like there's a massive disparity between the two leagues in terms of that, is it?
3: Yeah, I'd agree with that.
1: Yeah, uh, at least you'd see that. Uh, and obviously, Ramirez also of note there, Chris.
3: Yeah, I think I think that's one of the big takeaways is that... Um, he seems to have finally really grasped how to play in England because it's, it's Southampton he looked, he looked very soft, he looked very timid. I don't think he was too keen on the pace of things. Mm-hmm. But now having been at Southampton for a few years and then also at Middlesbrough, he seems to know when he can play and, and when he should maybe just lay it off or, or get rid of it.
1: Interesting stuff. Um, speaking of transitioning away from things, Southampton and Watford, you called this one. What do you call this one, Chris? I quite like the way that you labelled it.
3: Uh, uh, I think it was the new team derby or something the all change
1: derby the all change derby that yeah, it was it nice. uh, in the last three years
3: they've had six different managers between the two of them yeah and it's yet they haven't seen a significant drop off if you were to, to paint that story you would usually think it finishes with and they were relegated um, actually both teams seem well set up for, for change and constant change at that so it's it's going to be curious to see how they do this season because you could argue this might be the first time that they actually feel the the consequence of that change. Uh,
1: yeah, that is actually quite interesting for both these sides this season. Uh, the preview podcast, we said very interesting things about them. Maybe go back and listen to that one. Um, we, we'll see. I think for both those sides, a one-all draw probably uh, came out about fair in the end. Dave, we're going to come to you now for the way that Sunday began, which was... The excitement around Manchester United, the excitement around seeing the new iteration of this Bournemouth side. And so Mourinho plays his first Premier League game uh, as Manchester United manager. Re- sorry, real Premier League game, because of course uh, Facebook and Wayne Rooney's testimonial claim that that was the Premier League. Um, the, <laughs> and obviously, Mourinho uh, fielded a Manchester United side without the likes of Pogba in it, without. The likes of Mikatarian in it. And his goal scorers, Dave, were three people that a lot of people felt, uh, whilst they're very capable, wouldn't be in the, the picture during this Mourinho era, which was uh, Mata and Rooney. And then obviously Ibra on top of that, who's very much in the picture. But all, what's interesting about that, Dave, is three older guys. So Mata, older, Rooney, 30s, Ebra, 34.
2: But I think that that's just the experience, right? That's just football is going in a way where players can play for longer, play for have a longer career and still have the top level. I think the interesting part about that game is that we're slowly seeing what a Mourinho team was like at Manchester United. You know, playing in a four-two-three-one, that's been the case in the two competitive games. That drop into a four-four-one-one one without the ball, the more direct. He's galvanizing players. Maron Fellaini again had a, a very very decent game. Won six out of his ten tackles. Won twice as many tackles as any other play on the pitch. Misplaced a single pass out of 57 passes, which is very, very impressive. Kept things ticking over, disrupted well. Uh, played a brilliant role um, at goal kicks when Bournemouth had goal kicks. Mourinho made sure they couldn't play out the back. He pushed his two strikers up against their um, centre-backs. He pushed up um, Ander Herrera up against their defensive midfielder. And let Marouane Fellaini pretty much have a 1v1 Um, in the central zone that he obviously won because of his strength in the air. Very tactically, very interesting. But I think the the interesting part of this game was both up front for Manchester United and at the back for Manchester United. First, let's start at the back. You've know, got players like Eric Bailly, who've come to the Premier League, pretty unknown. But what we've seen so far, he's very aggressive positionally, very sound um, and very, very good on the ball, Completed 93% of his passes against Bournemouth, but defensively as well, um, made two interceptions, three tackles and seven clearances. Then you look at Daley Blind you think, thinking, our oh, Daily, he's, he's going to be pushed out of the team. Absolutely not. For me, Daly Blind was one of Man United's best players last season. I put him up there with David De Gea. Um, and again, he, he showed his quality, real, real quality. You know, two massive moments in the game where he pretty much stopped a goal. First, he uh, in just at the start of the second half, sure got done on the inside bar, Jordan 9. Who's coming over to make the block is Daly Blind. Man, um, the ball breaks at with the counter attacking. Daly Blind has a 1v1 versus Callum Wilson. Daly Blind stands him up, stands him up, makes the tackle, wins the ball back. Very, very, very good display from Daly Blind. And it's going to be hard for Chris Smalling to get back into the side. I think Mourinho's probably come to Manchester United and thought, Daly Blind, now nah, he's not really centre-back. But these games that he's seen, he's probably very, very impressed.
1: Mm, it is interesting. Um, and, and obviously, Chris, there's there's so many more uh, Manchester United discussion points out there as well. Obviously, Ebra uh, in, in his pre-match comments, saying uh, when asked about previous sides that he played for, he said... Uh, I came, I won, and I went. Um, obviously, so heartfelt the way that he uh, has a relationship with previous sides. Um, it, it is interesting to see the way that Manchester United are sort of uh, playing this season. That experience there, obviously, Mourinho knows how, the, how to get the best out of uh, experienced strikers. It's going to be really fascinating, isn't it, to see how to uh, see how he brings through this youth. You know, the Pogba's. Uh, the other youngsters within this side
3: Yeah because he's obviously just sold some of them off in in McNair and And Lovin I'm not saying that either were likely to contribute I think McNair was maybe uh, a little bit more likely but even then that's pushing it I think to to say he would have a long term future at the club
1: When he sold them both off do you think he sold them off and it was known as the day that McLovin left Manchester United
3: (laughs) Um, I think it will be interesting to see how he does that, though, because he was very eager, I think, in preseason to talk about the the famous forty-nine players that he's handed debuts to as, as youngsters. When actually, if you look through that, a lot of those were quite literally one-minute appearances. Um, <laughs> but they are still debuts. I mean, they are.
1: But then but they're not, are they? It's not. Know, it's, I mean, it's not. It's not the same as bedding a player into a
3: side, is it? No, exactly. It's not. It's not to draw the most obvious comparison, the class of 92 having long, illustrious careers at Manchester United, or maybe even someone like Darren Gibson, who served a purpose for a brief period and then was moved on. That is that is essentially the problem, is that he needs to start bedding in youngsters that actually contribute to the team long-term and don't just count to a statistic.
1: Well, is it also maybe worth saying within that, Chris, that um, Mourinho knows that winners essentially get to write a lot of the headlines. And so, you know, he, he knows what he's doing in that sense.
3: I think so. I also think he knows that there will be those of a sign to actually going and check those numbers out and see how it looked and how those players' careers developed. Um, I just think, in, in general, the only way he's going to have legitimate success with Manchester United is is by doing that. Chris, uh, uh,
1: before we go back to the match, what I did find quite interesting was that Mourinho said, journalists need to learn to read me better. And that was in reference to the Juan Mata debacle that went on in the press, uh, as the sub was subbed, as a lot of people say. Um, He says, if I didn't want Mata, he would not be here. The press need to learn, or people, more to the point, need to learn to read me better. A really funny, almost ironic quote.
3: (laughs) Yeah, he's he, It's he's almost like he's back to his best in that sense uh, he's because almost goes
1: because essentially you've be, you've seen him at his best in the press room at Sunderland and Newcastle, haven't you?
3: It, yeah, the 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 famous sort of interchange I had or exchange I had with him rather where I asked him about whether Chelsea had lost the ability to win 1-0 and he said it was the easiest result in football and they could do it any time they wanted. Funnily enough he didn't seem to do it that much after. We had that conversation. Um, do you feel like you you essentially psyched him out there? No, I, I don't think it was so much that. I think it was a case of did he you almost have, like, knew himself. I think. down the side of his car. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, Good. but I do think he almost, in saying that, acknowledged it unintentionally that they maybe had lost the ability to to close out games sure. as they once did, um, and I think. I think that's something that Manchester United will need to develop. They'll need to, to, to be able to win games one nil because actually if you look at almost any title-winning side from the start of the Premier League, they've been able to do that. And I think whenever he's failed, it's usually because they've lost that.
1: And I think that is, uh, Dave, where things are going to get very interesting for Manchester United is the structure of this side is explored by Mourinho. Obviously, we saw the structure on the weekend of this side with a spine of Zlatz and Ruse. Dave. Uh, Dave. Uh, sorry. Dave, are you turning your camera on?
2: I oh. misclicked the uh, oh, okay. mic.
1: Oh, right. Okay, got you. Then, <laughs> yes. uh, okay, that's what I found fascinating. I was, I, uh, <laughs> I was like,
2: shit, I need to click the mic on this. misclicked are
1: just listening. Uh, the fascinating bit is that Dave just tried to turn his camera on. I think we were all worried that we were going to see something. Um, anyway, Dave, go on. Uh, the spinos last time, reading. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting one. Uh, you know, it's mentioned in the preview, the, the issue with both players making the same movement. I think we saw that in the first half. United got a lot better when there was a, a bit of variation that uh, we had Rooney ahead of Zlatan at some times. I think that's where Manchester United needs to go. The issue with Rooney playing attacking attack midfield is he just kills everything essentially. When Rooney gets the ball, he stops the attack, he comes back on himself, he plays a square pass, he plays a backwards pass, which just kills the momentum and it rem- it means that the opposition have that time to regain the position and build that bank of four. And again, someone like Bournemouth, who covered the most distance in the Premier League last season, are very, very good in transitioning from defence to attack or attack to defence, just because they put the work in. And, and a game like this, it, it was frustrating, especially within the first half. You know, look at the goal, it was a defensive error that was capitalised on that was scored in the first half. One Massa just getting in behind and uh, pretty much uh, the centre-back bottling it and you know playing a pass back to his keeper not long enough and then Mata getting in and scoring. The issue that was sort of resolved in the second half, we saw Rooney running in behind and making those runs. You, know, you look at the back heel that Zlatan played for to Rooney to play in clear for a goal. Rooney should have scored that. The goal that Rooney scored played a very traditional number nine role that you know, he was involved in quotation marks earlier on in the move. But it was nothing to do with the, with the goal. He played a simple pass in central midfield that went out and then he moved forward and got into the penalty area um, a great break from the right-hand side. I think that Mourinho's teams, this Mourinho team, is going to be good at counter-attacking down the flanks and then getting it into the box. It's going to be a little bit different than transitioning centrally, which has happened before with like Mesut, Zil or Wesley Schneider. It's going to be more wide, going to McTierry and going to Martial or going to Jettlingot and then coming into the penalty area. Because I feel if, if United do hit the the two strikers a bit too early, kills them into the attack, especially with Weyman. So I feel that playing Zlatan off Wayne Rooney could be a very good option, or even Zlatan off Marcus Rashford would be unbelievable.
1: Interesting, obviously, Dave, that they couldn't play Lingard today, right? They didn't start with Lingard today.
2: So he's injured, apparently. Yeah. Uh, um, I
1: think it might be a calf injury. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting considering how prominent he was in pre-season. going to be fascinating to see when he comes back. And obviously Martial uh, playing quite significant roles in two of the goals. So it is going to be interesting to see uh, how the structure of that side improves with the implementation of players like Pogba, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh Two tweets coming in, one coming in from Joe Hamlin, who says, Adam should have uh, won. Wait, Adam should have won. Oh, right. Uh, sorry. Uh, basically, Adam needs to worry about uh, losing that bet this season <laughs> uh, with you, Dave. And then obviously, uh, Stebin Alex says, how good was that go- Ebra goal? Dick's out for Ebra, lads. Um, so
2: that interestingly, that Ibra goal um, has pushed Ibrahimovic to the top scorer from outside the area in the last two seasons. Um, if you want to check out more about Ibra's long range shooting, jump over to the Day Talks. I did a great little bit, a little section about his different variation of how he scored goals from outside the area.
1: Interesting, uh, and I think it's also that now he scored on his debut for.
2: His last four clubs are these.
1: Yeah, I think it's his last four clubs, which means he scored for. So. Um... Where did he come from? Barca, PSG. PSG. Where was uh, he? There? Where was so. he before that? Barca. Yeah. yeah. Barca. PSG. Barca PSG. Um, all of all of which went on to win. The Cham- did he win the Champions League at Barca? He won the league. No. He won the league at each of those clubs, didn't he? Yeah. Yes. Um, fascinating. Uh, now, two sides who are looking to challenge big time for the league this season uh, finished off the weekend. Uh, at least the, the the known weekend, not Ch- Chelsea, West Ham, uh, as Liverpool took a trip to the Emirates and then took a trip in the first half, Chris, uh, in what was quite an open, almost pre-season-esque looking game at times.
3: It was. I think that's one of the things we have to remember about the start of the season is that actually teams are still formulating ideas and, and all the planning and games that they played in pre-season are great there are still elements that are decided by actual testing and competitive matches. And I think that was typified in this game. But that was what was quite unusual,
1: Chris, is that obviously with Liverpool, there are some fascinating uh, formation issues there, which, which definitely came up in this game. Henderson and his ability to sort of control midfield. Is he able to control midfield alongside someone like Adam Lalana, who's now playing much deeper for Liverpool, um, along with sort of Mane and a lot of Liverpool players starting deep? Uh, for this one and counter-attacking. And obviously Arsenal's inability to deal with that. And part of that inability to deal with that, Chris, was that Wenger said, and I find this fascinating, physically, we aren't ready. Yeah, if it means fitness, then... Well, you've had the same amount of time as everyone else. And essentially, you should be building that in, right?
3: Exactly. What I would agree with him and again this is me sort of interpreting is, I don't think they had enough intensity or aggressiveness in their play, I thought they were were actually really meek for large parts of this and Liverpool's willingness to to kind of get physical with Arsenal I think really unsettled them and I think that's why you're seeing so many fans frustrated at this point is because it seems like the more the changes around them the more stays the same at Arsenal Um, and by that I mean that each passing summer not a great deal changes in fact Guy put up a, a graphic denoting how much each team had spent this summer and then also I think it was during the last nine summers
1: was uh, sorry Actually, just with Arsenal was that spend or um, uh, net, 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 spend. Net, net spend
3: it was uh, I believe it was just outlay. it was not okay. net
1: spend got you well, you got, got to talk about net spend if you want to talk about Arsenal Chris <laughs>
3: And it was qu- to be honest, it was quite a, a drop off. Um, I think it was—I want to say it was four times less than what Man United had spent this summer, and then about half of what they'd spent over the. I think it was, I think, I'm pretty sure it was the last nine years. Um, wow. And the thing is, you can again—you can be principled about it all you want with with Arsene, but there comes a point where you actually just have to spend money, and where well, well, it becomes almost dogmatic. Well, this is the thing. Today, I think, actually, for all we talk about the teams and the styles and all this kind of thing, I actually think Liverpool really benefited from an individual being able to turn the game for them. Um, So Coutinho, Coutinho in some instances, because he wasn't brilliant throughout, it was very much kind of little momentary patches of just brilliance. And then also Mane with his individual goal. I don't know if Arsenal have enough of those players. I think someone like Granit Xhaka can build into a bigger system and can help unlock spaces for, for that kind of player, like a Mane or a Coutinho. I don't think he does it by himself, though I don't think he is someone that will pick the ball up and then you know score or something like that. Um, so that for me is, is the frustration as I watch Arsenal, is that even now they could have had so many good players through the door, but for whatever reason he just doesn't want to do the deal at any point.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating, and obviously. Big,
2: big question there, though. We'll quickly, just to jump in, like, imagine if Arsenal had signed Sadio Mane, you know, wouldn't that be perfect for them, right? You know, a player that just describes exactly what Kristen just said that Arsenal need. They have players like Zaka that can build an attack, Santi Cazorla, Aaron Ramsey. The list goes on and on, but they need that pace changer in the final third. in a way. Well, but and I mean, surely Mane that, could have been perfect,
1: right? But surely that is then people like oxlade Chamberlain. Uh, I mean, they, they, they sort of have other players that fit together and make what Mane does yeah, for was, Liverpool again, and an individual the like system. He was great. I mean, his explosiveness for his own goal was, was brilliant.
2: I think that's a, that's a crazy thing as well. Why didn't he start? Had a great preseason. Again, had fitness. a brilliant preseason. Fitness, yeah, was didn't again fitness. But what? Yeah, it's kind of like going back to that old thing of yeah, we used to play forty games a season. We drank pints. We smoked and whatever. Yeah, but look Surely, at now. I, I I can I understand that there's a there's a level of fitness you have got to get to, and the, there's all this um, periodisation all this rubbish. But you've got to be fit, right? I don't give a, I don't give a crap how long your preseason is. You're a professional footballer. In that time of preseason, however long it is, you need to be able to be physically prepared for the first game of the season. As well with like blaming Wenger and blaming owners about how he's not spent the money. There's got to be some level of there's an issue here with the training staff or there's something here that if they're not they're physically prepared someone's got to cast the blame for that right someone's got to take that on the chest or maybe someone has to take responsibility of getting them up to that level because it's
1: certain it's quite interesting that they're actually playing a, a Liverpool side that most of them look fitter than they've looked in a very long time uh, at Liverpool um, and so obviously there's that contrast uh, Wenger although Wenger very much operates somewhat within a bubble which I think frustrates slash allows Arsenal. Uh, certain excuses. And it it is, I mean, you know, Chris was talking about the dogma of the, um, the approach to transfers. It's very similar with the way that he approaches, um, the way that he approaches injuries. I think I heard it on TalkSport that he was questioned as to why Koscielny didn't start the game. And his answer was a very interesting one uh, because he basically said, the reason he didn't start the game was because he was at the Euro. Someone said, well, then why did you start Ramsey? And he said, um, how did Ram? He pretty much replied with uh, Ramsey left again because he was injured, um, which is fascinating because it meant that he went against his own uh, rule to then break his own rule to then prove his own rule right. Possibly, I don't know.
2: So again, a question. So Martial obviously didn't play as much of the Euros. Just to, I was just trying to think of an example off the yeah. cuff.
1: I mean, there's loads um, I mean,
2: no, yeah, there's just, of them, I mean, yeah, it's just I just can't, I don't, I, I physically don't understand if you guys have got any explanation to, a player finishes an international tournament, you give them X amount of rest.
1: He yeah,
2: says, but he says four weeks. Give them a certain yeah. amount of rest to make, get them fit for the season. Have, don't have an excuse to for someone like Koscielny or Giroud, two players that are pretty pivotal, pivotal to this Arsenal team not being there on the first day of the season. For me, that is completely wrong. Yeah,
1: I mean, it, it, it is pretty fascinating. I don't, I don't know if there is a sort of a reply that's a public reply. Um, it, I mean, it's also fairly fascinating in the sense that uh, he was questioning the Guardian just the other day. A lot of people uh, just uh, literally, I think it was on the morning of the match, saying, uh, "What do you think about transfers?" And Chris, it was a very interesting answer he gave, where he said, "New players are just new players. They do not remain new players
3: forever." Again, that just sounds. For one, for more eloquence, phrase that just sounds like bollocks to me. It really but, uh, does.
1: You you do sort of see why that what, what he means by that as well, though, don't you? And I mean, I understand. It's just he, an excuse, but essentially, Arsenal do need new players, um, or they need new players in certain positions because of the way that they operate. And he's he's refusing to buy those players. Some people are saying that's a striker in Lacazette, who I believe this weekend scored a hat trick. Um, even if it is in Liga, that doesn't really matter. Um, Uh, And then uh, obviously also Mustafi as well. So it's kind of interesting because uh, in in many ways, I think Wenger's answers are right. But at the same time, if you're looking for a a solution or whatever, then he he doesn't seem to have a solution. And that seems to be the problem here.
3: They need variety in that squad. That's the problem. They've got too many of the same kind of player. And they also, I don't think, have enough depth either. Um... And the fact that, again, he keeps finding reasons not to spend money, I just, I do, I don't understand it. And he can use as many different kind of ways to dress it up and and say what you want about, you know, new players aren't new players forever. They've needed investment for a while relative to their ambitions and he just hasn't done it.
1: Interesting. Uh, I also find it unusual. I mean, a couple of Arsenal fans I saw pregame on Twitter saying, why can't we get new exciting players? I know you shouldn't really uh, put all fans in as one, but I instantly thought the answer was, well, Sanchez and Ozil are very exciting. Uh, you know, Cazor is exciting. Oxlade-Chamberlain is exciting. Um, you know, I mean, even Awobi is exciting. So there's a lot of excitement in that side. I, I do find it unusual. I also find the analysis of Arsenal... And the entitled nature with which some people, I'm not saying you guys, but some people do analyse Arsenal is also fascinating. Um, And just because Arsenal don't fit the analysis, uh, so many people seem to get quite angry with Arsene Wenger. It really is fascinating. On the other side, Liverpool 1-4-3. Uh, And Dave, already we've mentioned a couple of of man-of-the-match-esque performances. Coutinho floating in and out, uh, but ultimately with two great moments. Um, and then a couple of other people in there with with sort of floaty in and out moments. But the the key man for me, and or at least the most active man on the pitch, it looked like, was Mane.
2: Yeah, I think Mane Mane had a great great performance again. What what Liverpool need to get out of Mane is that every single week something that. Um, was difficult to come by at Southampton there were phases where there were spells of games where he performed like that every single week and then against Arsenal yeah I'd agree he's one of the best players on the pitch dribbled past more opponents won more tackles than any player drew the most fouls and obviously scored a very brilliant individual goal mm-hmm. but I quite like the Coutinho performance you know we said pre-podcast, the, the pre-podcast sorry, on the preview of the season that um, Coutinho needs to stop scoring the brilliant goals and start scoring the easy goals in, in some respects that's what mm-hmm. I was sort of coming at he's t- against Arsenal he scored a brilliant goal, but he also scored a very simple goal and that tap And that's what you want Coutinho to do as a Liverpool fan. You want him to get him into those right areas. He's very composed. The finish for the for the client clinical Cross was, was fantastic. Yes, But you need that brilliance and that simplistic um, nature of that goal. So I think with Liverpool, it, it's looking quite good. But again, a little bit open, you know, letting Arsenal back into the game with I a full goal lead. The three regarding. Yeah, a little bit frustrating. I imagine you were sweating, a sweating buckets. I don't. I, to um, be
1: honest, I don't think I was sweating. It was hot in London, but I don't think I was sweating so much because, um, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I just. I'm almost just enjoying the ride at this point. It's not so much about winning as a Liverpool fan anymore. It's more just about sort of getting that entertainment. But that is also, I guess, what's ultimately very frustrating is that there's nothing entertaining about watching Alberto Moreno dive in on Theo Walcott in the box. Or say Simon Mignolet hesitate when coming out. If you want to get that pleasure from watching players play, then you want to sort of see them playing to their very best of their ability. Um, and for that reason, you know Carrius is probably going to end up as Liverpool's number one, and Moreno is probably not going to be Liverpool's um, first choice left back. Although it is interesting that Liverpool have not been linked with many left backs over the summer, even in the press, um, and now it seems to be most people's number one priority. Um, Moreno is a fascinating player. Uh, attacking wise, I think he's very much a left winger. Defensive wise, I think he's very much, um, yeah, left winger. Um,
2: <laughs> he did m- an Anthony Martial. I think the one criticism, though, sorry, going back to the United game, was Anthony Martial switching off for the Bournemouth goal. Yes. He was absolutely blinded from where Adam Smith had just sneaked in behind him. But similar to what Moreno does, and it does feel like Moreno is a left winger playing left back because it, it, it just gets so. Drawn into focusing on the ball and forgetting his position and forgetting where he is, and then, then having to like react and making a very like making very rash tackles. And again, it happened today, gave away that crucial penalty. But then again, for the goal, you'd say potentially got done again. That oh no, no, Dave,
1: he absolutely was caught up the pitch for the goal and left that side.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's I didn't want to be too critical of him, Lawrence. I thought you might cry because it's it's been a bit of a slam for him. But no, I'm fine. Yeah, it's just one of those things where he doesn't. I don't understand. Again, this is like a similar to the Arsenal criticism with uh, getting players back to fitness. Liverpool know they have a weakness at left-back. They knew last season. Why has that not been addressed?
1: I'm, I Honestly, I don't know if I have an answer to that. I, I wonder if it's because Liverpool have been trying to address it, but haven't found someone who fits that. And maybe if they haven't found value in the market, then they believe they can coach it into the value of the team.
2: Um, One single name, Patrick Rodriguez. End of.
1: Or even James Milner or just
2: someone
1: someone who can play at left-back and be solid. Uh, But it it also shows how if one player is weak within the system or if one player is seen as a weakness within the system, um, then it's definitely an issue. And Liverpool's full-backs on Sunday were not great, let's put it that way. Um, Because, I mean, Klein didn't have a great game either. I think he had a 6 out of 10, even though I don't find uh, ratings very handy. It says what kind of a game Klein had uh, although attacking wise, it was also really impressive to watch him at times, and he's a, a great uh, asset, especially for the likes of Jordan Henderson in midfield as an outlet against that Arsenal side. Uh, Arsenal were obviously booed off the pitch at the end of the game, and what I do find fascinating is that people seem to assume that just because you get up and leave your chair at some point in the game, you're leaving the stadium. I will remind people, and I always find that fascinating in commentaries, they go, People are leaving already. I sort of think that some people kind of go, you know what, I need to go and get a drink or I need to go and go to the toilet or and they're not going and getting in their car and sort of driving away from the stadium. They're just sort of leaving the, the arena pitch bit um, and they come back in the end. But it's funny how the media construct that. Um, has anyone else heard about Petr driving into the pole? pole? <laughs> the post.
2: Uh,
1: uh, well, apparently it was a pillar. Um, apparently he drove his car into a pillar uh, I don't think it needs character references no uh, I don't think he, yeah he was he drove his car into a pillar post-match apparently they are quite narrow at Arsenal um, and it, it apparently was a right off to the car there you go is that what we're going to finish on I believe so uh, what have we learned this weekend let's finish on what we learned this weekend anyone learned anything on the podcast that they didn't know maybe pre uh, the you know, opening whistle of the weekend. I've learned that referees can be very sort of, uh, they've got a bit of personality now. A lot of fourth officials joking around with players at the beginning of the season. It's all very casual. There's a pillar in Arsenal's car park you've got to watch out for. Yeah. <laughs> I
2: think that Ranieri's got to find the right blend between attacking talent and defensive stability, Lawrence.
1: It's good learning, yes. Um, and
2: Marouane Fellaini is the next Zidane. We'll leave it on that.
1: Let's definitely leave it on that. Uh, Tweet us with what you've learned from the weekend and come Wednesday, we'll be looking through your learnings, what you're looking forward to, what you're not looking forward to. Uh, Let us know where you get your good news as well and your bad news. Um, It's nothing too sinister from that, please. Uh, And then obviously uh, go find us on Wednesday when we'll be doing the Q&A podcast. Maybe the final one where Adam Boltwood is actually in, uh, within the boundaries of England. Uh, before we find him somewhere else in the world But it's been lovely to have you Dave, uh, in the meantime People can head over to Dave Talks I guess And find you on Twitter
2: Yeah, yeah, do that Dave Talks, that'd be cool
1: Yep, Dave Talks is good uh, Always worth a look um, And obviously there'll be a lot of coverage this season Are you doing a review of the Manchester United game this weekend, Dave? Davo?
2: Yeah, I've recorded it I just um, obviously was busy this afternoon at a party So I'm going to hopefully edit that At the early hours of tomorrow morning um, Wow and uh, get it out I've Very some, some interesting tactical points I'd say you heard it here first Dave gets it
1: out on the video um, and then of course Kristen you're always
2: getting it out
3: yeah just not on video obviously um, just Chris know. mate it
2: pays a lot of money does it yeah yeah big big money
3: I think I've got a face for radio um, personally
1: but, okay. uh, it's very sweet you think we're talking about your face but that's good
3: I mean, yeah, no, that's the point as well. That's pretty weird looking too, now I come to think of it. Um, Wow. I would definitely stop by Dave's channel having uh, watched his videos. And I say that as someone who has not the greatest interest in Manchester United, but I still find it very interesting. Or the real United, as you call them. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely what I call them.
1: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Chris, where can people go and find you?
3: Uh, I'm going to plug Facebook if you type in my name and click the one that is not me in a Mets hat and f- like that one that would be grand
1: so you're, you're telling what 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 could, what should people look for image wise if they're searching you on Facebook
3: it's me in a polo jumper and a pink dress shirt looking off to one side the other account is my personal account and while I'm very flattered that you want to know about my personal life I do not yes. want to share that
1: and that's fair enough. Uh yeah, go find Chris on Facebook. Wow, Facebook. What's going on over there, eh? Is what I actually believe the Facebook mantra is. Uh so we'll see you guys on Wednesday when Adam Boltwood uh will be back. And we
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.
1: Would love to hear from you guys in the meantime. We'll see you again real soon on TF3.